Good morning. I ask you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. I just want to take a second. This is the last week before Christmas. If I'm reminding you of something you're not aware of, then you've got some work to do this week. Fellas, I'm excited about the opportunity to preach to you this Sunday before Christmas. Everyone's a good, we have a, a good one, but this one is always special. A lot going on in the life of our church. Just may, let me state to you just a couple things to, to put on for this week. I know it's a busy week. This evening, uh, we'll be worshiping here together again with Lessons and Carols at 6 p.m. You won't want to miss it a night where we put the scriptures and song together to proclaim this message of Christmas. So you want to join us tonight as a time of worship as we gather together as a body. This Friday is Christmas Eve, 4 p.m. We'll have our Christmas Eve service. We would love for you to join us time as we reflect again on who God is and what he has done. And then next Sunday on the 26th, we'll have one service. There'll be no life groups, but we'll have one service at 10 a.m. next Sunday. So if you normally come for this service at 1030, come on in. I'll just be getting started preaching. I won't make fun of you, but uh, set it a little bit earlier and be here at 10 a.m. as we'll worship together the day after Christmas at 10 a.m. Looking at our series on the songs of Luke, we have looked first at Mary's song and we've seen Zechariah's song. And this morning, we're going to look at the songs of the angels. Luke kind of couches his whole birth narrative of Jesus around these songs. But as I looked at this passage, I was thinking back to my childhood, as I often do at Christmas, we get nostalgic. And I was thinking of my grandmother who didn't like TV and didn't want us to watch it very often. And so there was always one show at Christmas, though, that she loved, and it was Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown Christmas, she loved that one for us because Charlie Brown is searching for the meaning of Christmas, and finally Linus has had enough, and he gets up to the microphone and he reads Luke chapter 2. Here's the meaning of Christmas. And so as we look to our passage this morning of the, the song of the angels, if it's good enough for Charlie Brown and Linus, it's good enough for us to start in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and read this entire passage together. So join me there, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lay, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was 
with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened with which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that has been relayed to us through Luke, Father, the story of the birth of our Savior, the King of the universe. And so, God, this morning, may Jesus be exalted. May we look at this passage, and like every morning, we proclaim the glories of redemption through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And may people today hear just as the shepherds heard, and may they believe just as the shepherds believe. And may we leave from this place going and telling just as the shepherds did. Father, work in our hearts even now. For your name and for your glory, we ask these things. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. It's important for us to set this passage, I believe, in its historical context. As we talked about last week, Luke states in Luke chapter 1 that he was a historian. He went around and he looked through this history and he went to the eyewitnesses and he put this gospel together. And so it's no small thing that he begins Luke chapter 2 by saying, in those days a, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. At this time, of Jesus' birth, Rome had conquered much of the known world. Really, all of the world around Israel had been conquered by Rome. The empire had become great. It had built itself up under Julius Caesar. And then after Caesar, it went through a time of rapid growth, of wars and, and moving forward. In fact, it went through its time where it was ruled by what was called a triumvirate. Not having one ruler, but three rulers. And these three rulers, Marcus Lepidus and Mark Antony and Octavian, these three rulers took their armies and expanded Rome. As you know, though, it wouldn't take long before competition brewed. It wouldn't take long before they needed to decide. It's not good enough for all three of us to be in charge. There needs to be one leader, one ruler. At that time, Mark Antony and Octavian uh, excommunicated Lepidus and put him away. And now Antony and Octavian built their armies together. Mark Antony with, Mark Antony with Cleopatra and the armies of the south built their armies to bring forward and come to a battle. Octavian, the warrior, comes with his army. They come together at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. And there Octavian wins. He puts Mark Antony's army to flight and sends them away, crushes them so as they will not be raised up again. This made Octavian the very first emperor of the Roman Empire. And immediately he began to expand the empire all the more with his army, making it bigger and making it greater. And soon Octavian would establish Rome as the greatest empire known to that day, expanding its reach farther than ever before in every direction. To recognize Octavian's promise and prowess, the Roman Senate would give him a title. 
He had already taken on the title Caesar that all of them would take as the emperor. Now he would take another title. They gave him the title Caesar Augustus. Not just a name, but a title. Not just a statement, but a title. And the name Augustus means holy or revered one. And up until this moment in history, this title was reserved only for the gods of Rome. Only the gods could obtain such a title as Augustus. But now, now the ruler of Rome, the, empire of the, the emperor of this great empire of Rome has received this title and the people recognized his place. In fact, many cities around Rome would change the, the new year to the birthday of Caesar Augustus. When you look back in history, you'll find inscriptions about Caesar Augustus, and many of them would give the little, the little moniker at the end of it, Caesar Augustus, Savior of the whole world. They looked at him as the Savior, and it was not uncommon to see him referred to as this for the whole world. And it's with striking simplicity then that Luke enters into this time period. It's kind of interesting how Luke begins in the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It's with this simple statement that Luke places us in that time and in that place, places us during the reign of Caesar Augustus. As Rome became more and more powerful, Augustus wanted to, destroy, to display his power. He would display his power by saying, let's count everybody under my control. And so he orders a census. And when he orders a census, now he can show how great his empire really is. He orders a census to count them all. Not only can he count them, now he knows how many to tax and how much money should be coming toward him. He's demonstrating how great he was. His ruling, his ruling to make a census shows his power in the sense that it wasn't just for the major cities of Rome and its empire. It had effect all the way down to the small little towns and villages and hamlets. When he made a ruling, it affected everyone, even down to a little old village called Nazareth. I'm sure many in Israel were complaining about this. I mean, it's the government, they're making rules, we want to complain, right? I'm sure many in Israel were complaining about these things. What are we supposed to do here? They're wanting to count us again. They're forcing us to go back to the, to the village of our forefathers so that we can be counted again. Oh, they're just wanting to tax us all the more. They're, they're, they're just trying to move us out. They're just trying to force us and tax us again. We really miss the good old days. I'm sure it was better back when, but now Rome is becoming more and more oppressive. They're wanting more and more taxes. Augustus is showing his power in more and more ways. And even the small all little towns are having to comply. While it may seem like to them the world was moving away from God, it was getting worse and worse. This great worldly king was showing how great he was. And because of that, all of Israel had to pay attention. But as one commentator says, little did this haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think that they were actually only instruments in the hands of the one true God. They were carrying out the eternal purposes, not for themselves and their own glory, but for the king of kings. In other words, this action by Augustus, this action to count and to show taxes and to show how great he was, forced Joseph and his very pregnant wife Mary, young and living in Nazareth, that forced them up out of their home to head down to Bethlehem. Here, she's great with child. You would never plan a trip 
when your wife is great with child, especially when you're traveling on a donkey and you're going several miles down to another place. You would never plan that, but it caused Joseph to get up and to go. And what we know is it was Bethlehem to where the Son of God would be born, as the Old Testament tells us. This action of Augustus, when he was trying to show how great he was, was only, only displaying the greatness of God to carry out his plan. The big picture storybook Bible for children puts it in a great way. While Caesar, the king of the Roman world, was showing everyone how great he was by counting all his people, God, the king of the universe, was showing the world how great he was by sending his son into the world as one of his people to save his people. To save his people. Luke, in just a subtle way, puts all of this in play for us. For many in Israel, it must have felt like everything was moving away from God. No prophet had come for 400 years. Roman rule was getting more and more oppressive. Forced taxation on them. The hope of the Messiah was waning for them. He may not come. They were losing all hope. And in reality, in reality, God was using world events to bring about the very best time for the Messiah to appear. In reality, God was working. He had been working the whole time. You see, Caesar Augustus brought about through his rule, brought about what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was during this time that Rome was not off battling in war. They had peace. They had conquered all that they had wanted to conquer. So during that, they put all of their resources to building better road systems, to building better cities so that things could move easily throughout the empire. Not only that, because Rome conquered, now a language was becoming universal. So every city spoke this language. And so what Paul would say is when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman and this fullness of time means that God was using the very rulers of this world and things going on to bring about the very best time for his Messiah to come when there was one language so everybody could know it and understand it's why our New Testament's written in Greek Whenever the road systems were easy enough for the gospel to spread and for it to go from Jerusalem to Rome and to the uttermost parts of the world, while peace had come along so you could travel with much greater ease and quicker work, all of these things were working together, working together. And Augustus, like the rulers of this world, cannot operate outside the plan of God. Just because God is silent does not mean he's not working. Just because God is silent at a time does not mean he is not carrying out his plan. Just because for 400 years they hadn't heard from him does not mean he had forgotten them and he'd forgotten their promises. He knows and he knows exactly what he is doing, working all things together for his plan to come about to send his son into the world. In an effort to demonstrate the greatness of his kingdom, Augustus only was laying the foundation for the kingdom that was greater than his. In an effort to demonstrate how great he was as a king, Augustus was only laying the foundation for the king of kings to appear, the one who would crush the idols of Rome, the one who would take on the gods of this world, and whatever title you may want to give them, it would only fall to waste compared to the king of, Lord, king of kings and lord of lords of God. Here, in this way, it makes this passage all the more incredible, right? As Luke just says, it was during the days of Caesar Augustus, the man who they thought was a God. It was during his days that the true God would come. But it's so interesting how this passage lays out because it seems like here comes the fanfare. 
The real king of kings is being born. The real one who rules and reigns is coming, not Caesar Augustus, the one whose kingdom will last forever. He's being born, and it looks like here comes the fanfare. Here it, here it is, but instead it's so understated. In, fi in fact, Luke chapter 2, especially verses 6 and 7, I find to be some of the more fascinating verses in all of Scripture. Because we praise the Lord for what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, right? And for centuries since his birth to this day, Christians have gathered every single Sunday all around the world to proclaim the name of Jesus. And it has gone forth from Bethlehem, born in a manger, all the way to Taylor, South Carolina with the good news of who has come, right? This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one who spoke the earth out of nothing. This is the one who holds it all in his hand. And as Colossians 1 says, everything is from him, through him, and to him. This is the one that gets all the glory and all the majesty and all the praise forever and ever. Amen. This is him. And Luke just says, and while they were there, the time came to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. How understated is that? I find it incredible. Luke's the historian. And he says, listen, this is the one who will destroy Caesar Augustus and his rule and reign. This is the one who will put all earthly kings to flight. This is the one. Yet this one, this one who was forced to go to Bethlehem with his family because Caesar Augustus was showing how great he was. This one, the king of kings, was born with no place for himself. In fact, there's nothing available for him. That statement there, there's no place for him in the inn. There's no place for him to stay. No one made room in Bethlehem. They're traveling in. Everybody's coming in back to Bethlehem to be counted. And no family said, hey, come on in. We, we don't have much, but we got a little corner over here you can stay in, right? You can sleep on the couch if you want to. They're looking at Joseph and Mary, and there's nobody with any available room. There's no place for them to stay. In fact, even as we look at this, as Joseph is traveling down, I'm sure, I'm sure more than anything I know that Joseph was nervous. I remember when our second child was born, and they told us to come to the hospital at a certain time. I came to the hospital at that time, right? Not one second later. And then they said, oh, she's not ready to go home. I said, no. I'm not delivering this baby. You know what I'm saying? You're going to do this. And I was nervous about all that was happening. I was nervous about everything that's going on. You know what I'm saying? Here's Joseph traveling down to Bethlehem with his very pregnant wife. And he's thinking the whole time, I got to find somebody to help me with this. Surely Joseph cried as many tears as Mary did that night. Don't worry, ladies. I understand. But just consider the scene, if you will. Think of this, there's no playing of fable. Joseph's trying to find his wife some comfort, trying to get her a, a, a place that was comfortable to, for, for her as she's starting to have this baby, and he can't find it. This is not how Mary imagined it, I'm sure. When the angel appears to her and says, you're gonna have the son of God. Even when she was a virgin, how can this possibly? The Lord will do it. And she sings and she praises God and she talks about it with Elizabeth and all the... Just a few months earlier, this is not the way she imagined it, I'm sure. I'm going to give birth to the Son of God and it's going to be a cold floor in a stable in Bethlehem with Joseph as my doula. Y'all didn't know I knew that word. <laughs> That's not the way she's looking at this. Birth in and of itself is no pleasant thing, but imagine this. 
No availability, no place. The Son of God was not born as a prince. He was not born in some castle somewhere. He was not raised up in the palace of the king, if you will. The Son of God was born as a pauper. And here, in these two verses, in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, in these two verses, Christianity begins. Here in these two verses, our Savior has come. Here in these two verses, our King has come. Born of the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Here in these two verses, all the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled and God has not forgotten us. He's not left us. He's been working this whole time to bring about the perfect time to bring his Messiah into the world. Here in these two verses demonstrates God, God's love for us as people that he has not forgotten us. He's coming after us. And it's so understated that I love it, but in so many ways the spiritual significance is seen here for us even today. For that's how the Lord comes into our life, right? He comes into our life where there is great need. But oftentimes we don't even receive it or understand the need. Oftentimes we don't even understand how great our need is for a Messiah, for a Savior, and yet Jesus still comes to us. Oftentimes we have not welcomed him, not let him in. We've, we've not created a space for him, yet he still came for us. Oftentimes we've done exactly what everybody else did, unrecognized, unacknowledged, not wanted, forced out of his home. We've all seen this. This is the testimony of the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But he always comes where there's great need. He always pursues where there's great need. John puts it this way in his gospel. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The testimony here is clear that Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke it all into existence that holds it in the palm of his hand, came to earth to save his people and he was re rejected and despised, as Isaiah says. He was born into humility. He would live a life of humility and he would die a humble death. But notice that he didn't come for our reception, if you will. Notice that if he had come for our reception, he would have immediately turned around and went home. He came because the Father sent him. He came because redemption had to be accomplished, and there was only one way for it to be accomplished. He came to a people who did not want, it, want him, a people who did not recognize him, and a people who thought they didn't need him. He came to them, and he came to them anyway, in spite of all of that, because the Father said, this is how salvation will go. This is how it's going to be accomplished. I'm going to do it through the sending of my son, who will be born of a virgin, laid in a manger, live a holy, perfect life, and go to a cross and die. This is not the way I would have saved the world, by the way. This is not the way I would have figured it would happen. And for many people, it's just what the scriptures say. For many people, it's a stumbling block to think that this is how God would do it. This is how, how he would save. This is how he would bring redemption. For many people, they look and they go, that's crazy. That's nonsense. It's a strange way to save the world. Y'all get that reference. But this is exactly how God did it. He sent his son to a people, even though they did not recognize him or desire him or want him, he knew it was the only way salvation can take place. So he sent his son. 
He sent his son not to be welcomed, but to be born, as Luke says, in an inn because there was no place for him. That was the world's reception. That was how the world received its king. But there's a clear contrast in this passage. How did heaven receive it? If the world was not, you know, excited about this news even, what happened in heaven when this happened? Luke, in his contrast, goes straight into verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out of the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Here is the shepherds in the field. It's an interesting group that the Lord chooses. But while the world's reception was not to welcome the Savior, heaven's reception must be seen. That this one is going to see that heaven is rejoicing at the coming of this king. And who will they make it clear to? They chose, God chose in his great sovereignty to make this announcement of the birth of the king to a bunch of shepherds. In their society, shepherds were treated as unclean. Their lifestyle demanded it. They lived around animals. They were constantly dealing with animals. And then according to the law, they couldn't cleanse themselves as they should. So they were just simply considered unclean. They can't keep the law. So they were outcasts from society. But not only that, because they lived this lifestyle out in the fields, they were often considered as thieves and liars. Therefore, even their testimony wouldn't be counted in court. You wouldn't believe the message they would say. They were liars, right? In fact, shepherds were just considered a little bit higher than lepers in their society. Castaways, set outside. Not the one a king would come to, but it's the one that the Lord appears to. These are the ones the Lord comes to. These are the ones that God chose to make his announcement to. And, and, and let me stop to say this. Grace, God's grace, always upsets our expectations, don't they? We sit here and we think we know what God will do. We think we know who God can save. We think we know these things. We may look at some individuals. In fact, you may be having some family come this Christmas. And you may be looking at them and say, they're too far gone. God can't save them. Look at what mess they made with their life. You may be here this morning. You don't even know why. And you may think, I, I'm too far. I, I, I'm too outside of God's goodness. I'm too outside of this. This message isn't for me. You need to know that your expectation may have been to come here and just simply hear another sermon, check it off, hear some Christmas songs, and then leave and go home and eat. That may have been your expectation, but God's grace always trumps our expectations. God's grace can come to us even in this moment, even in this time. You may be home just appeasing your parents, but God's grace still can come to you and still can change your life. And maybe for the first time, you can hear a message that even the shepherds heard on this first Christmas morning. You can hear a message that says, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been longing for because grace always upsets our expectations. The message coming to these shepherds just proves that the message of the coming king and salvation to this world came to the poorest of sinners first. And what I'm here to tell you guys this morning is that's me as well. I don't deserve this message. I don't deserve to hear it. I don't deserve to know it. As Paul says, I'm the chief amongst those who are sinners. But what we can say this morning as one who has been bought by grace and God's grace trumped all of the expectations you may have for my life and all of my expectations I may have. What I can say this morning is like the old song says, shake hand with the poor boy who owns everything.
Shake hand with the one who's been bought by the blood of a savior and a king. And just as he came to the shepherds, he's coming to each and every one of us. And listen how they come. Verse 10, the angel says, you imagine these shepherds every night, they just wait, they're hoping, it gets dark, they get the sheep all herded up, they're relaxing, laying up, looking at the stars. They can see so many more because they don't have light pollution like we do. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And then all of a sudden, the bright light comes. They ain't seen anything like this before. All of a sudden, this angel appears in the heavens. They've never seen anything like this. Even them out here in the fields, this angel appears. And look at what it says. Fear not. The message of the angel should not be, should not be forgotten. Look at what it says. Every word's important. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This isn't just good news. This is good news of great joy. This is what's going to change your life forever and go from, from sadness and pain and heartache and oppression to joy and happiness and goodness. This is changing our life for this good news that has come. I'm bringing you good news of great joy for unto you born on this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here, Luke is, is, is reiterating this to say this is a, a, a real thing. In fact, the angel is saying there's a place where there's a manger and there's a baby in it right now. This isn't some parable. This isn't some, some message that comes to you that's a good story. This is true. There was a real day in a real city and a real Savior was born. Go see him. In other words, this is true history. This is the historical truth of God's word. There's a real day, a real city, and there's a real special baby, and his name is Jesus. He is Savior, and he is Messiah. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, that wouldn't have caught the shepherds off guard. In fact, they would have thought, that's exactly where we know. This is what they're used to. This Jesus came to them in their place, just like them. The shepherds hang out in the stalls, right? And here the Lord has appeared, and he has come just like the shepherds. He's come to where they hang out, where they live, where they dwell, amongst them. Amongst them. And suddenly, I love verse 13. This angel comes, the glory of the Lord appears around them. This angel comes and suddenly, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, I agree with the commentator that says there was not one angel left on the sideline for this chorus. All of the angels of heaven appear to praise God. You see, the birth of Jesus meant the coming of redemption. The birth of Jesus meant salvation is here. Just as sure as he was born and laid in that manger, he would surely die on that cross. And just as sure as he died on that cross, he would surely raise again on the third day. And just as sure as he raised again on the third day, he will reign forever and ever. And so as they sing, they know this means redemption, salvation has come, and they rejoice. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the angels rejoice in every, every single time one of us gets saved. Amen? This is just a picture of it. And here they rejoice and they sing. All the angels join in, not some little, little group, not some special elite singers. This is all of them. All of them join in and they gather together. And their response to this good news of great joy is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. They sing. They held out that glory for a long time. We've been held, holding it out ever since. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The glory was so great, they see it. 
And they sing. They hear the good news that redemption has come through this Jesus who's been born, laying in a manger, and they respond with singing. And what did their song tell us? Two things. All glory to God. All glory to God. Salvation has come and God receives all of the glory. We've seen God's glory throughout the stories of the Old Testament, from creation, the flood, from the burning bush in Exodus, to Mount Sinai when it comes down, to Elijah when fire rains down, to Ezekiel when the burning wheel comes. We've seen the glory of God over and over again appear in the Old Testament, but we have never seen it like this. You see, God gets great glory for creation, and we look around at creation, and we see his majesty, and we see his power in it. We see all of those things, but God gets more glory. And hear me when I say this. God gets more glory through salvation. The fact that he did not leave sinners in their sin, but he sent his son to die for them. Glory to God for what he has done. This birth of this baby is the glory of God now revealed. The birth of this baby is the most glorious thing these angels are saying that's ever occurred. John says that, that, that when this son comes, this one comes, we will see God's glory. His glory has finally been revealed for all of us to see. The birth of this son means that God's glory is not hidden from us. We don't have to put our head under a bushel like Moses did whenever we look at because we're glowing. Now we can look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we can see him and all of his glory. God's glory has come for what he's done through this baby born. God's glory means our peace. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Sin had entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3 and that sin had disturbed the great peace of God. And most clearly that peace was disturbed between God and man. Because sin separated God from man. And so all of us are longing for some peace, right? We've been separated from God. And what we've done throughout our whole life is we try to fill our life with things that can bring us some sort of peace. But that cannot be found in this world. The only thing that can bring peace to our hearts and to our lives is the one whom God has provided for us. The great, the great one who has crushed the great disturber of the peace of God. Jesus Christ himself. This God's glory has now brought us peace. And the one who has united now through his work on his death and his resurrection, united God's people back together with God through bringing about peace where there was no peace. But not only that, that peace lasts in our heart, right? We've been looking for so many things to bring satisfaction to our souls and to our lives, but it's only Christ who can fully satisfy us. We have a war waging of trying to find some satisfaction in our circumstances, but it's only Christ who can provide this. As the angels sing, they sing of God's glory and they sing of our peace. They're told, shepherds are told to go. Go and see. They're invited, come and see, come and see. I haven't been able to prove this, although I had several people talk to me about this this week and I even looked at it that these shepherds may be, and I think it's very intriguing, they may be the shepherds because Jerusalem is right next to Bethlehem. They may very well be the shepherds that were keeping the flock for the temple. The ones who were keeping the flock for the temple to take care of those sheep because they would be provided as sacrifices. And a manger, a manger is a place 
in the rock where it was hewn out, where sometimes they fed, but oftentimes also they would place the baby lambs in the manger. I love that imagery. Because they said, here's a sign for you. Here's a sign for you, shepherds. When you go, you won't find a lamb in a manger. You'll find a baby. And he'll be the sacrifice for you. This is the one provided. Come and see. Come and see. The shepherds get up and they go. And when they get up, they come and they see and they realize. They realize this is exactly who it is. And whether or not that's true or not, I love it. But either way, this is the lamb provided for us. Either way, as they say, come and see. We recognize the same invitation is out to all of us. In fact, this is what Christmas is all about. It's an invitation to us to come and see. See that peace has been provided. See that the king is here. See that salvation has come. See God's glory displayed in his son, Jesus Christ. Come and see. And you'll find a king who reigns. And who is good. In verse 18, come and see. Now go and tell. And these shepherds, who many thought were liars and thieves, wondered at what they said. Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Christmas is about peace. It's about peace that has come. Peace in our lives as we are united back with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us. Peace in our hearts as we find our satisfaction in him and in him forever. And all kings of this earth, all the emperors of this world, that's what they promise. They promise their people, we will have peace. And even as you look at Caesar Augustus, who provided the Pax Romana, the greatest time of peace in any empire, it was just a blip on the screen of history. We look to the king of kings, who provides peace for eternity for his people. That's the one we worship and celebrate today. Hear the invitation that was given to the shepherds. The same invitation is given to each and every one of us. Come and see. And what you will find is a Savior who has died for you, who has been raised again and who lives. A Savior who will give you peace. Come and see. Come and see. And you will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for it is good for us. And I pray this morning, God, as Everyone is here in this room listening to this message, thinking about Christmas. It's a busy week that is coming, but for this moment, God, calm each and every one of our hearts so that we can hear the invitation to come and see. And what I know, God, what I know is that in coming, in coming to you, we will not be disappointed, but we will find exactly what we have been looking for. Our expectation this morning may not have been to be confronted with the King of kings and Lord of lords, but your grace is greater than all our expectations. And so, God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know your peace, they will find it in Christ Jesus. Even as I stand here before this congregation this morning, Lord, I pray that if anyone here that wants to find that peace, they will come. Come see me, come see others, and find it in Jesus Christ our Lord. All for your glory and all for your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.